I'm Barry Hankins, and uh, I'm in the history department here at, at Baylor. Uh, I've been thinking and writing about Baptists for about the same number of years I've been one, which is a bit more than two decades now, and I've been at it long enough that I no longer believe the thesis of the first article that I wrote about Baptist. I came out of graduate school pretty sure I understood the essence of being Baptist and went back into history kind of looking for them. And what I found were a bunch of people who didn't always fit what I thought was the essence of being Baptist. And nevertheless, they professed faith in Christ and insisted on believers' baptism and called themselves Baptist. And so I quickly abandoned my sense of the essence of being Baptist and decided it would be a more profitable endeavor to try and describe Baptists and all of their diversity. Uh, last night, our speaker called this moving from the search for essence to the telling of the Baptist story. Uh, I believe we're here tonight not so much to tie up all the loose ends uh, as to what it means to be a Baptist, but rather to tell some of the Baptist story of the past 400 years and discuss where that story might go over the next 400. Uh, in a sense, we're here to put in our two cents about 400 years of Baptist history. Um, I remember when I was uh, a boy, some of you probably had this experience growing up as well, that uh, there would be times when I would be staring off into space thinking about who knows what, probably professional basketball or something, and my mother would say to me, penny for your thoughts. Uh, recently, an American comedian has asked the provocative question, why is it a penny for your thoughts when you have to put your two cents in? He said somebody's making a penny. So. Last night, Professor Emeritus Martin Marty put in his two cents, or perhaps a good bit more, given that he's a stellar and prolific historian of American religion. Tonight, we have three scholars who will be introduced in just a moment who will respond to Dr. Marty's address from last night, and they'll have a chance to put in their two cents, and then Dr. Marty will respond to their response. I think if you add all, add all that up, you get about a dime's worth of Baptist, uh, 400 years of Baptist history and probably a whole lot more uh, than that tonight. And it's a bargain considering the price of admission. As the other Barry H. mentioned last night, we had a fourth respondent scheduled, Baylor alumnus Ed Gausted, who is Professor Emeritus of History at, at the University of California, Riverside, and has written prolifically himself on a number of topics in the history of religion in America. Uh, sadly, Professor Gauss had suffered an injury in a fall some weeks back and was, one, was unable to be here with us, but we send him our regards and keep him in our prayers. Following our panel discussion, we intend for there to be time for audience questions, as there were also last night, some very good ones. Uh, I would like to thank all of our panelists for taking time to be with us here tonight and last night and all day today. And taking time out of their schedules to join us here at Baylor for the 400th anniversary of Baptist history. To introduce our panelists tonight uh, in our discussion uh, and to outline just a bit about the procedures and ground rules, we have Baylor President David Garland. David. Thank you. It's so good to have you here tonight and to have our guests as we celebrate uh, our 400 years. Uh, I wanted to let you know that the uh, lectures have been taped and they will be available on the Baylor website if any of you would like to uh, download them or hear them again. 
Uh, we had a wonderful lecture from Dr. Martin Marty uh, last night and some wonderful questions. I will not go through the uh, in introductions of each person as they are, are written in, in our uh, program, but I would like to, to say that Dr. Marty is internationally known as a scholar uh, of um, church history and, and religion. And I pointed out last night that he has received 75 honorary doctorates. Uh, it is not a misprint that he has written over 5,000 articles. Uh, but we are to here to, uh, tonight, we're going to hear other scholars respond. And the first one to respond is Dr. Emmanuel Goatley, who is the Executive Secretary Treasurer of the Lot Carey Baptist Foreign Mission Convention, an international missions agency that was founded in 1897. Uh, he is a graduate, PhD graduate from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He'll be followed by Dr. Nora Lozano, who is Associate Professor of Historical the uh, Studies at Baptist University of Americas in San Antonio, uh, and she brings a very distinctive uh, perspective for us tonight. And then another distinctive perspective is doc from Dr. Nigel Wright, who is principal of Spurgeon's College. He's been principal there since uh, 2000. And uh, he is an ordained minister of the Baptist Union. It says that he comes from north uh, of England, and that is Manchester. So we look forward to hearing them tonight and also your question. Dr. Goatley. Good evening, and I want to express my gratitude to uh, President Garland and to the Baylor community for the privilege of being here on this campus. Uh, it's my first personal visit, um, but it's good to see friends uh, that I've known uh, from my time at Southern Seminary and also in the Baptist World Alliance, and I'm grateful to be here with Professor Marty and my colleagues. Um, as we share in this uh, celebration, I was uh, thinking about this past July, July 2009, uh, being at the Baptist World Alliance annual gathering uh, when we had uh, an evening to celebrate uh, in worship in the Mennonite Church uh, in Amsterdam. And it was a wonderful experience and an opportunity to feel in a unique way a connection uh, to our Baptist family uh, through the centuries and through the, through the years. Although 400 years is not a long time uh, in terms of the life of the Christian experience, uh, it is our time and we're a part of that continuum and a part of that stream uh, and it was good to be there and to be here tonight to reflect on uh, the future of a denomination and we're grateful for what Dr. Marty had to say for us last night. Uh, I'd like to organize uh, my few minutes uh, in, in two ways. One is talking about, with, in reference to the future of a denomination, uh, talking about uh, a caution uh, toward disunion and a calling for communion. Um, I think that one of the challenges 
uh, that we face in terms of a Baptist family globally uh, has to do with the issue of globalization. And there are, all of us have experienced that the world is more accessible, it's closer to us. Um, and part of that challenge, having more accessibility all the way around, is that some of the roles that the denomination has played before, kind of a centering role and a coordinating role, uh, that can no longer be assumed. Uh, for those who um, pay attention to what's going on in business, uh, the, the uh, development of the personal computer, uh, the development of the Internet uh, now makes us connected in ways unimaginable. Uh, my first degree was in computer technology, and I learned to program using batch cards. And uh, you, you, you have to be a certain age to even appreciate what that means. Uh, you type on these clunky typewriters, and they would punch holes in cards. You take them and you give them to an operator, and you schedule when you came back, two hours or four hours of the next day. Uh, but now the instantaneous connectivity that we have uh, influences us. So we talk about business to business. We talk about being, going direct to whoever we're connecting with. And so that centering role of denominations uh, is no longer needed in the same way. Uh, I work with a global mission agency, and it used to be that churches would funnel in and feed money into a central pool, and then from there it would be distributed. Where you have churches now who are doing their own projects, they're connecting internationally with people, they're, they're uh, traveling, uh, they're wiring and transferring funds using PayPal and the like. So it creates a whole different um, need uh, for the denomination. So a denomination has to try to figure out what its role is, what value it adds in the life of a church. I think that's one pressure, this kind of decentering and distributed networking is a, a caution, it's a, it's a pressure for something like disunion. I think another pressure for disunion that we have to face also has to do with uh, a, a growing and expanding talent pool. Um, I had a conversation with uh, one of my um, senior pastors when I was a young pastor. He was 30 years my elder. And he decided that he wanted to take me to dinner at a denominational meeting. And, you know, I was a young, broke pastor, so I was going to take him up on his invitation. And he said to me, uh, David, you young men don't respect us like we respected the fathers. And as he talked about it, it was a sense of he was struggling that certain things had changed. Uh, when he was a young pastor, they relied on what he called the fathers, the leaders, the elders. There were fewer of them trained. There were fewer of them had exposure. There were fewer of them had opportunities uh, to experience the world. And they were counted on to be the interpreters. And so they would go to the big global meetings or the national meetings and then come back and interpret for everyone else. Uh, by the time I had come along, I had been to seminary just like he had been. Uh, I had been 
traveling to the denominational meetings just like he had. I'd had opportunities to travel internationally just as he had. And while he had much to offer, I didn't depend on him to be an interpreter the same way uh, that he had depended uh, to be an interpreter. So what the denominations were able to provide in terms of a smaller number of, of leaders who could interpret Baptist life and uh, being relevant in the age we serve, that kind of dependency on those few interpreters is no longer needed, in my opinion. Uh, the kind of talent pool, there's more people with more opportunities and more insight and to have a tightly controlled, centralized denomination where the, the opportunities to express your leadership gifts would be more limited. Um, I think that is something that will influence our future. Um, President Garland had an interesting analogy of talking about uh, doing away with the dandelion by blowing on it. Uh, and, and that kind of scattering uh, is something that many of us have experienced in different denominational lives where there have been uh, whether a need or a desire to create new ways and new forms of expressing leadership and expressing life that could not be controlled. I think that decentralizing the globalization, the distributed networks are something that we will have to uh, deal with and negotiate. I think third is that the vibrancy of the church in the South or in the two-thirds world is something that is going to influence the future of the denomination. Um, there are churches that are coming of age, that are shaking off uh, remnants of imperialism, of colonialism. Uh, they're vibrant, they're energetic, uh, they have gifts, uh, they have uh, unique ways of expressing a relevant missional engagement and transforming lives. And that kind of tension, there are some people, particularly in the North Atlantic communities, uh, that, that haven't quite grasped the coming of age uh, of, of what some people would call younger churches. Uh, that's a stressful thing for some people. For some of us, it's exciting uh, because we can learn uh, from, from one another. Uh, on last night, uh, uh, Professor Marty uh, talked about the difference in, in entering with a question or an answer. And the question invites the conversation. And we have to have a kind of humility uh, to come alongside and to ask and to listen and to be learners together uh, rather than bringing answers to someone else. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure that these issues related to a, a globalization, decentralizing, uh, distributing networks influence what it means to be Baptist as we go forward uh, for the next 399 years, as we were told last night. I think those are cautions because they, they challenge, they press for disunion. But over against that pressing for disunion is a calling for communion. Some people talk about we need denominations because we can do more together than we can do apart. Uh, they talk about efficiency of scale. They talk about managing resources. That's a utilitarian way of talking about the need for denomination. 
Uh, that is a byproduct. But the call is really a call for us to be family. Uh, the theologian J.D. Otis Roberts uh, writes in one of his books about family being a domestic church and church being an extended family. And so for us to have a sense of call to be family, to be one, to be gathered together, to have opportunity to share, to grow, uh, to strengthen each other, and even to tolerate each other is, is something that denomination can facilitate. Um, we hear a lot of people today lamenting about not being able to, uh, families not eating together. Everybody eats on the run or in a different room or with the television going in the background. Uh, so if you use the metaphor of coming around a table for sharing and growing and learning together, perhaps that is a call for denomination, that it creates the tables around which we gather uh, that call us together for shared experience uh, as we seek to be faithful disciples uh, to Jesus. So I think that we need to stay away from the utilitarian model about we need denominations for the publishing or the institutions or the efficiency of scale for missional engagement. They can be byproducts, but it's a, a theological issue of being children of God, sons and daughters, and followers of Christ. And I think we can live in to that vision. Uh, finally, I'd like to say that we had a, I had an interesting opportunity to participate in the Baptist World Alliance working on its strategic uh, vision. And as we tried to include voices from all around the world, uh, there were five clusters that ended up being agreed upon for clusters of commitment for this quinquennium. Not 400 years, but at least for five years. Uh, and those clusters were evolved, re revolved around uh, worship and fellowship, mission and evangelism, uh, relief and sustainable development, human rights and religious freedom, and relevant theological reflection. So those are the kind of clusters that the Baptist world family is working around. Interestingly, there were two that were most valued and identified as having the greatest work, the greatest impact. And they were relief and development and human rights and religious freedom. Those were the voices when you look at the composite picture around the world, which I find fascinating because my hunch is that for those in North America, we probably would have talked about mission and evangelism. But the voices from around the world identified our connected family experience of the, what was valued the most and what, when we did our best work was around these liberating uh, uh, theological motifs, relief and development, sustainable development, empowering, and also around human rights and religious freedom. I don't know what all of that means. I just know that it means something and that as we are moving into uh, the next uh, 400 years or 399, I think we have to take very seriously the threat for disunion and seek to live into the calling for communion. Thank you so much. Good evening.
I would like to, pay to thank President Garland and the organizers of this event for inviting me. And I would like to thank also all of you who kept me well informed about the academic and general details of, the, of this event, especially Dr. Barry Harvey and Mrs. Paula Autry and Dr. Carla Lipper. Thanks, Dr. Martin, for a provocative paper that helps us to reflect on the future of Baptist from an outsider perspective. It is always very helpful to do that, especially if the perspective is presented in a respectful, concerned, and challenging way, like we heard last night. I come to you as someone who looks at the future of Baptist as a theologian. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Marty came as a historian. I come as a theologian. But this theologian has a particular specificity. I'm a Latina theologian who looks at life and theology from a bridge. By looking from this bridge, I want to recognize and honor the experiences that identify me as a, identify me as a Mexican and as a Mexican-American woman. And we are close to the border here, to the Mexican and uh, US uh, border. And a lot of these lands are uh, joined, united geographically by a bridge. And this bridge helps me to imagine a cultural bridge where I can stand in order to incorporate my experiences in both of these cultures. Crossing this bridge back and forth is a practical exercise as, as, as I drive back and forth in the border. It is practical because as soon as I cross from one country to the other one, I have to switch from my American to my Mexican passport. I have to switch wallets, money, cell phones. But it is also spiritual, emotional, and academic exercise because I have to change cultures, languages, uh, worldviews. So these changes have helped me to see through different and wider eyes. But this theologian comes to you not only with a particular cultural specificity, but also with a religious one. I have been a Baptist from my mother's womb. I come from a country where Baptists are a minority, where they have been persecuted, and unfortunately are still persecuted. I come from a country where historically Baptists have defined themselves as anti-Catholic, Whatever Catholics did, we did not do. If they drank, smoked, danced, or got involved in politics, we didn't do that. If they venerated the Virgin Mary or Guadalupe, we just ignored her. So we learned to forge a space for ourselves in a primarily religious and cultural Catholic environment. Then in the 70s, we had to do the, some of the same, but with Pentecostals and Charismatics. Whatever they did, we did not do. But in defining ourselves in negative, anti-ways, we lost so much. Some of that has uh, recovered, but we have lost so much. What I have said about Baptists so far, I think that applies to a great extent to the Latino Baptist world here in the United States, and especially in Texas. So I grew up in this kind, with this kind of Baptist, very conservative, but then I was educated in more progressive circles, and my perspectives changed. And later, by serving with the Baptist World Alliance, I have had a chance to observe and spend time with many Baptists around the world. And I'm sharing all this with you to tell you that my response to Dr. Marty's paper does not come in a vacuum. It comes from a theologian with her own specificities. And I'm sharing all this to invite you to see the Baptist world with different eyes and to dream with me about a better Baptist world. Dr. Marty described last night the we in the future of Baptists. Who are these we? 
We are the ones who care about our future destiny, the ones who take responsibility of the Baptist cohort, and those motivated to care about Baptist heritage and future. I'm part of this we, and since you are here, most likely you are also part of this we. Regarding the future of the denomination, to be honest with you, I'm not sure about 2410. I hope that in 2410, Baptists will be a vibrant group that continues to witness to the love and mercy of Jesus and to be light wherever they are. But to make it to 2410, we first have to make it to 2110, and 2210, uh, and 2310, and I am more concerned about this. I'm more concerned about the immediate future of Baptist, and this is what I think we, concerns, ba concerned Baptists of today, can make a contribution, all of us. So I would like to explore now some of the challenges that Dr. Martin introduced last night, and, and I would like to frame my discussion around the topics of identity and inclusion. First, let's talk about Baptist identity. Dr. Martin mentioned last night following Ortega Gasset that a human has not an essence but a history, a history with highlights, with marks. What are, what are these marks that make a Baptist a Baptist? A reminder of an experience that I had when I was in college in Mexico. I was talking with a classmate and he asked me about my religious affiliation and I answered very proud, I am a Baptist thinking that perhaps I was before a great opportunity to share about Christ. And then he answered, ah, you are the ones who don't drink, smoke, or dance. I was very disturbed with his answer. How sad that society was perceiving us based on external practices. I wanted so much to be described as a group that has mercy and love for people, those who are ready to help, those who show Jesus Christ, those who show Jesus Christ with their lives. Later, when I came to this country, I found out that the media identified Baptists with not going to Disneyland. So the question is, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? Walter Shurden talks in his book titled The Baptist Identity about four Baptist principles or distinctives that he calls the four fragile freedoms, Bible freedom, soul freedom, church freedom, and religious freedom. Some other Baptist theologians and historians may subdivide these principles a little more and arrive to a larger number of Baptist distinctives. But I agree with Shurden that these four are the most essential ones and somehow include the other ones. I will assume that most Baptists will agree with Shurden in theory, but the challenge comes when we put them to practice. Shurden affirms that these Baptist freedoms are the major reason why the Baptist family is so diverse freedom. And as we know, this diversity brings its own challenges. Dr. Dr. Martin mentioned last night that it, it is useful to talk about basics, but hard to picture anything getting set up for our whole family as Baptist, because we argue about a lot of things. And as he was mentioned last night, I grew up also knowing uh, that where there are two Baptists, there are three opinions. So in Light of this challenging diversity, can we negotiate a future as Baptist? And last night, Dr. Marty alluded also to the Baptist as a family, and I would like to reflect more on this image. I don't know about your family, but in mine, there are some characters. Sometimes they make me feel embarrassed, 
disappointed or angry. But I have learned to live with them, and I know that I cannot divorce myself from them. I have learned to love them as they have learned to love me. And, there are the, and then there are the members of my family that I really love. They are like me, they, they think like me, they look like me, and I just feel comfortable with them. So every Christmas I have to remind myself time and again that we all have been called to be a family, the Lozano and the Diaz family, and that we are all included and are called to live in unity, peace, justice, and love. Yes, we have our conflicts, but conflicts are good if we learn how to solve them in a good, creative way. A good solved conflict helps us to be a better family. So can we negotiate a future as a Baptist family? Or as Dr. Marty mentioned, can we explore renewed ways to conceive of a Christian communal life as Baptist? In relation to this, Walter Churin highlights that fundamental to the four Baptist distinctives that he discusses, there is a solemn trust, charge, and obligation, and undying responsibility. A good balance between freedom and true responsibility is required to live as a Baptist family. Now, like all families, the Baptist family is very diverse, and I believe that our essentials give us room and space to live in peace and love if we learn to tr trust each other and in God. As we do this, we will be able to envision a future in unity, true unity that celebrates diversity instead of a future that demands and imposes uniformity. What makes a Baptist a Baptist? Well, the essential freedom that children discusses, such as Bible freedom, soul freedom, church freedom, and religious freedom, and most of the rest becomes a matter of practice. So I ask, can I trust my Baptist brothers and sisters to leave these principles in their context as they, as they respond to their own issues and calling? Or do I have the urgency to tell them how to leave these principles and in consequence their lives? Certainly, these new ways of approaching each other will require much modesty and humility on the part of many Baptists, including me. It will require letting go of thinking that my view is a view and that my solution or perspective is the best one or the right one. It will require much dialogue and my willingness to learn from the other one. I had to accept that I was embarrassed when I read in Dr. Marty's paper the following statement, and I quote, the Baptist press gives indication that Baptists are denouncing each other more than hearing each other about ways to relate to Christ and others. Even though Dr. Marty was talking about witness to Jesus and relation to world religion, religions, I think that this statement applies to other areas of Baptist life too. Dr. Marty challenged us to look at issues of race, class, and gender within our Baptist family. So I asked, can I trust the ways that the Baptists in Asia are trying to be Baptists as they live in a context of Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam? Can I trust the Baptists in Georgia and USA who exercising the Baptist principle of church freedom decided to call a woman as their pastor? Can I trust and be patient with the Baptists in Latin America who are still having a hard time relating with Catholics because of the heavy persecution that Baptists have suffered there? Can I trust in the Baptists in Jamaica and in Africa who worship with drums and bongos and almost dance even if they look too charismatic or Pentecostal for me? Can I trust and dialogue with the Baptists who believe that the Lord's Supper and baptism are sacraments and not ordinances? Can I trust them? Furthermore, can I trust God? 
Can I trust God and recognize that God is working in them and through them as much as God is working in me and through me? I would like to invite the Worldwide Baptist family, as Dr. Marty said, to hear each other and discuss better ways to relate to Christ and to each other. As we look at the future, I would like to mention four issues that I believe will be crucial for Baptists in the immediate and long-term future. And I, would, uh, I have discussed partially the first two, but I will mention briefly uh, the four of them. The first one is identity, as I mentioned, defining what makes a Baptist a Baptist and understanding that Baptists are very diverse, but that we are all part of the body of, the body of Christ. This definition is to be expressed in words, but also in actions that show the values of the kingdom of God inside and outside our churches. Number two, inclusion. As Dr. Marty mentioned, some groups of Baptists have a better record than others in terms of including racial minorities and, and women. But Baptists need to make an effort to continue opening doors for racial minorities and women in denominational and academic structures, as well as for women in the area of ordained ministries. As I was mentioning, I have been Baptist all my life, and I have experienced a huge leak of women resources and women power, if we can call it that, that way, in, among Baptists. I have seen it in Latin America, and I have seen it here. I keep hearing women who are really tempted, good Baptist women, just to go to the Methodist church, for instance, because it's a lot easier there. We cannot afford to continue losing all these good Baptist women that are not finding a room among us. Uh, issue number three, Trinitarian theology. I was very pleased to see that the officials of the Baptist World Alliance decided to concentrate for the next five years on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. While Baptists have been centered in the doctrine of Christ and to a certain extent in the doctrine of God, we need a more balanced theology that includes not only the person of the Holy Spirit, but also the work of the Holy Spirit. It is time to explore more this doctrine. I'm convinced that we need the Holy Spirit to ensure a good future for the Baptist family. We, we're not going to make it if we don't have the Holy Spirit among us. Do I sound too Pentecostal or charismatic? I hope not. I'm just being a biblical theologian. In relation to this also, we have to make peace uh, also with the issue of diverse worship styles that reflect our diversity. There are conventions in Latin America that are dividing right, right now because this issue of worshiping in different ways and we cannot afford that. And the last one, the last issue is through partnerships. As a scholar such as Philip Jenkins, and it has been mentioned before, keeps saying that the center of Christianity is moving south we will need to negotiate through partnerships that will allow us to fulfill our mission and will help us to survive. If the money for missions is in the north but the potential missionaries are in the south, let's work together in true partnerships without paternalisms, keeping in mind that we're members of the same body of Christ and that we have the same goals, sharing the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God. These true partnerships will have to apply to denominational Baptist structures worldwide as well as theological education and the production of books and knowledge. For instance, right now, there is a major crisis in theological education in Latin America because uh, missionary agencies are taking missionaries out, native leadership was not trained in theological education, so there's a major crisis right now in theological education. 
So it has to be true partnerships without paternalism and training native leadership. I'm sure that there are more challenges, but I believe that my time is up. So for now, I want to close by joining Dr. Martin, congratulating Baptists for this anniversary. While it is true that Baptists have had shortcomings and many challenges throughout history, I'm very proud to be Baptist. I was born as a Baptist and most likely I will die as a Baptist. I agree with Dr. Marty that Baptist life at its best has offered a rich and warm home for many of us. So happy anniversary to all my Baptist family, happier and I would add healthier and more vibrant next 400 years. Thank you. Well, good evening to everybody. I think I'm the speaker who puts the Anglo back in Anglo-American. And I think it's appropriate that uh, I not only um, express my thanks to the organizers of this conference and to those who've spoken already, but also bring greetings from the other side of the Atlantic, from your uh, British cousins, and especially from your Baptist brothers and sisters in the United Kingdom and in Europe, where our movement, of course, began some 400 years ago. I've noticed that today is the Martin Luther King holiday. And back in the UK, it's a different kind of day. It's the first day of the week of prayer for Christian unity. This is a, a week in which we pray in my country for the whole church, not just for Baptist Christians, but for the whole church of Christ throughout the world in its many expressions. One of my assignments in this week when I get back home will be to preach this coming Sunday in the Tower of London, would you believe, in the little parish church that serves the Tower of London, which is known as St. Peter Advincula, St. Peter in chains. I'm just hoping that if I preach a bad sermon, I won't get my head chopped off as uh, my preaching fee. For some reason, this church of established Anglicans, Episcopalians, wanted to hear from a Baptist preacher, and that's what we're going to get. And I knew when I was invited a few weeks ago to come and uh, preach uh, exactly what I wanted to preach on. And that is from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, and that great verse, verse 9, where John the Seer says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. What a great passage. And four points that I want to express in the time that I've got. Well, the first point is to say that in much of what has been said so far, we've been dealing with what we might call the calculable future, the future that we are seeking in one way and another to anticipate and to calculate. We've surrounded that with all kinds of caveats because we know that we can't calculate the future and that we may express some pious hopes, but we 
will not be sure whether we get things right. It's right that we should think about the future, but of course this is not the only way in which we can think about the future. There is such a thing as the imaginable future, the future that we can imagine. And indeed, the future that we are taught to imagine, as in passages such as Revelation chapter 7. This is a different way of thinking about the future. We think about the future under the sign of promise, because this is a promise of the ultimate future that awaits Christ's church and God's world. It's a future that we imagine under the sign of hope, the great doctrine of hope that goes with our faith and our love. It's a future that we imagine under the sign of gift, because we know that it is not we who will accomplish this future. It will come to us as something given by God, by grace. And yet it is a future which we truly believe will come to be. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I want to suggest that this is a transforming vision, a transforming way of imagining the future that awaits us and all God's people. And we have to say that this therefore means that everything about Baptist life is provisional. Everything we've spoken of in the 400 years of our story, everything that we currently know in our present existence, we have to say is provisional. This is not the last word. Baptist life is not the last word, thank God, about the church. It is a stage on the journey, a journey that we share with God's people of many different confessions throughout the world. It is a pilgrimage that we are engaged in as we travel towards the future that God will give to us. So that's my first point. And it's a different way of reflecting upon the future of our denomination, of our movement, and of the Church of Christ. And it leads to a second point. The impetus for this conference is uh, in large measure drawn from Professor Marty's article on Baptistification Takes Over, which appeared, as we've heard, in 1983. I read this article when I was doing my own PhD research, and uh, reading it again in preparation for this conference has made me aware of how influential that article has actually been in my own reflections and in some of my own writings. I have to say that I'm not sure I've always given full credit for where these ideas have come from, and I'm very pleased to be able to uh, discharge that proper debt tonight because indeed I recognize in that article a number of trains of thought that I have uh, held dear to uh, as the years have gone by. Because it seems to me that one of the things that article was saying is that um, despite what our forebears thought, and I don't think they were right about everything, there is no one way of being the church. Now, as I read our forebears, it seems to me they had imagined that they had discovered the right way to be the church of Christ. And they drew from that the inference that other ways of being the church were therefore wrong. And they had a degree of confidence in interpreting the New Testament uh, in its teachings about the church that I am not quite sure that I have to the same degree. 
it seems to me quite appropriate to say that there are different ways of being the church of Jesus Christ. And those different ways may have their own integrity. They may have their own root in Scripture and their own justifiable trajectory from Scripture in the life and tradition of the church. And I see it as a spectrum. And Professor Marty described it in that article as a, a yin and a yang, or a yang and a yin, of complementarities, different ways of being the church, which actually complement each other. When we understand the bigger picture and grasp that no one part of the church has all the truth about the church. Each of those uh, ends of the spectrum that I think of might be described as, on the one hand, the Catholic end, with a small c, because I don't mean here simply Roman Catholicism, but a whole uh, gamut of perspectives shared by Orthodox and Episcopalians as well, uh, in which certain values are held dear. And at the other end of the spectrum, Baptist with a small b, because there are many movements that look like our movement, but which don't necessarily call themselves Baptist with a big B. And each of those ends of the spectrum, and there are many hues in between, has its own authentic concern. And each also has its own pathological form. So, for instance, at the Catholic end of the spectrum, it seems to me that the key issue seen at its best is the desire for connectedness, that the Church of Jesus Christ is one, and it is right for the church to hold together. There's a connectedness through time, which has to do with historical continuity, so that we can recognize ourselves to confess the same apostolic faith as those who confessed it at the beginning. And there's also a connectedness through space between the churches of Christ throughout the world. And of course, in the Catholic understanding, the role of the bishop is crucial as both assuring us of the continuity with the past and also of our connection through time. Now, I'm not sure how you respond to that here in Texas, but I don't find that uh, a difficult vision to want to embrace. The vision of a church which is connected, where all of us are able to recognize the historical continuity and the relationship across space. This is, to my mind, a good vision. And yet it has its pathological version. And this is what our forebears understood with great clarity. Its pathological version is when connectedness becomes control. When this desire for connection is infused with a spirit of imperial power and becomes a way of dominating people religiously and requiring them to think in certain ways and denying them the freedom to think in any other way. Our forebears understood that this was not how it was supposed to be, that this was not the church of Jesus Christ. And quite rightly, in my view, they protested against it. So at the other end of the spectrum, we have the Baptist vision and its authentic value appears to me to be one that we've already heard of, freedom. The belief that Christ sets us free for freedom 
Christ has set us free. And that no one should take that liberty from us, whether they be prelate or whether they be politician. That in Christ we have a freedom which transcends the powers of this world. A freedom which is expressed in the life of the local congregation as under Christ it determines its own life and which is expressed in the separation of church and state and which is expressed in what in the UK we prefer to call freedom of conscience. We're not too keen on the term soul liberty, by the way. To us, that sounds a little bit too individualistic. Freedom of conscience is something enabled in community, not something we possess uh, independently of the community that shapes us and forms us and forms our conscience. But because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the power to judge. We have the mind of Christ. And this emphasis on freedom is that which I think we can celebrate as part of the heritage that we have and as part of the witness that we have. But as with the Catholic end of the spectrum, it has a pathological form. And the pathological form of freedom is fragmentation. It is the desire to do that which is right in our own eyes, irrespective of others. It is the denial of our connectedness with our sisters and brothers. Or as one German theologian has said, Baptists have worked with the dictum, we disagree, we'd better split. And our movement certainly demonstrates that. One great historian in the Baptist tradition in the UK was a man called Dr. Ernest Payne. You possibly know his name. And uh, he wrote an article when he was president of the Free Church Federal Council in Great Britain, and he entitled it Free Churchman, Repentant and Unrepentant. Well, I'd like to paraphrase the title and say Baptist Christians, repentant and unrepentant. There are things about which we can be unrepentant, the witness to freedom being one of them. There are other things where we should repent. The propensity to fragmentation is one of those things. So that brings me to my third point. And this is about a new language, and I share this from the British context, but it may already be familiar to you. A new language about how we might relate, not just within the Baptist family, but within the Christian family. This is the language of corrective ecumenism, that we need the whole church in order to correct us in those areas where we may see less than the full truth. And that takes us back to Revelation chapter 7. You see, along the way, both the Catholic and the Baptist has tried to claim that his or her way of being church is the true church. And with great liberty, abandon, enthusiasm, we have unchurched one another. We have denied each other the status of church. I want to claim tonight that the church that we can call the true church does not yet exist. But we do see it in Revelation chapter 7. The true church is something we have yet to become. Whether we be Catholic or Baptist or somewhere in between on that spectrum, it is something we have yet 
to become. But what we see in Revelation chapter 7 is a vision of the gathered church, because here is this vast multitude that no one can number, which is gathered in the presence of the Lamb. And if there is a gathered church, surely that is it. And yet at the same time, this church that we see in Revelation chapter 7 is the Catholic church, because it's a vast multitude of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. It includes the whole representative gamut of human beings. And when we confess in the Nicene Creed, which personally I'm very happy to do, that the church is one holy Catholic and apostolic, I always need to say that with reservation, because there is nowhere on this earth today a church which we can say is one holy Catholic and apostolic. But one day the church will be one holy Catholic and apostolic. And this is our agenda in the present day, to do all we can, that it should be one, that it should be holy, that it should be Catholic, and that it should be apostolic. And here we come to the corrective ecumenism. There is that which we have to give, that concerning which we are unrepentant. There is that witness that we and others like us can offer to the whole church and to the world. And we need to hold fast to it, not to turn from it. But there is that which we have to learn. There is that witness which other parts of the church make to us. And if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we should notice and to which we should respond. And it concerns how to be in connection with each other and with all Christ's people, wherever they may be. And this is a major challenge for our future. Today, by the way, I learned today is Blue Monday. Did you know that? I was watching Fox News earlier on, and there it was at the bottom of the screen in ticker tape form. Apparently, a British psychologist has discovered that people are at their most depressed on the third Monday in January, which is today. And as it was Fox News, and as it was a British psychologist, I have no option but to agree that this is the case. And I confess that if I think of the future in terms of what I can calculate, I am left depressed. I am pessimistic. Because I do not see in myself or in others like me the ability to rise above our past failures. But if I think of the imaginable future, the promised future, the future that God is able to give to us, then I wouldn't quite say I am optimistic, but I would say I have hope that these things can be, that these things will be, that Revelation chapter 7 will come to pass. So that brings me to my last point and the fourth point. We care about our future. That's why we're here. And I found it immensely reassuring and helpful in Professor Marty's address yesterday to know that there are other people who are not Baptists who also care about our future. I find great hope in this. There are people who don't want us to be other than we are, 
but who care for our future, that we might be the best that we can be. And that says to me that we need to care about other parts of the church, about the future of the Lutherans and the Episcopalians and the Pentecostals and the Catholics, because our future is bound up with their future. We are the Church of Christ. It is perhaps this quality of caring for others and being cared for by others that will shape our future. And it strikes me, being at Bailey University and having got to know some of the people in this place and especially some of the students in this place, that Baylor University is a good place to say this. And this hope of good things to be, the best is yet to come, said Robert Browning. This hope is something that we can celebrate together tonight. Thank you. In his second last minute, Dr. Wright said something that reminds me of something I'm going to say out of these two days of experience, and that was the word of students. <coughs> there was a question last night about the future in which I was very pessimistic because Catholics and others had lost two generations of young people, and that isn't really the fact at all. When I was acting president of a college, everyone was talking about how the young people had deserted everything and they didn't stand for anything and they had no interest in anything. And in that college of 2,700 students, at that moment, over 600 were working for Habitat for Humanity. Over 400 were overseas somewhere or other on study such projects. Various kinds of volunteering. <laughs> and I told people, when I went to college, I don't know anybody who volunteered for anything. I don't know one person. We didn't even know what it meant. And so I, when I see people that we've met today, for example, students, I get a lot of cheer from that. Um, I think what these three respondents also hit me with is the, I think the genius and the appeal of the Baptist tradition is that it forces people to the sharpest kinds of polarities that can't easily be resolved. First, we heard about community and how destructive it can be if you get it wrong and how wonderful it is if you get it right and how the Baptist traditions pull you in both directions toward tight community or toward individualism and autonomy. We heard about, secondly, identity and freedom. Freedom is a core thing in the Baptist tradition. But you don't know what it is to be free unless you know who you are and to whom you belong of what story are you a part, as it were. And the Baptist tradition constantly forces that upon you. In the United States, I don't think we think quite as much about that as you do in many parts of the world. My wife and I have projects overseas and we'll be somewhere, or Guatemala somewhere, where uh, of what people you are is really important because you have nothing else. We all have multiple identities. American, Chicagoan, Lutheran, Democrat, all these other kinds of things. Kimwani's Garden Club, I don't care what it is. If one isn't working, you can always do another. If you're the poor of the world, 
you had better have made friends with people who will heal you, care about you, etc. But that doesn't go away, as I heard in your presentation, in a world where we still have all over the world problems of class, of the role of women, and so on. And the Baptists forced that upon us. And then the third on promise and future, to have that, this is a conference after all on futures, and not to deal only, as Dr. Wright said, with a calculable future, which eludes us. So a couple of comments on each of these. Community. Um, Schopenhauer, who doesn't often make his way into Christian discourse, has a parable called The Porcupines. I wrote a book of my grandchildren said, that's Grandpa's porcupine book. His parable about the porcupines fits very closely to the Baptists as we hear it described in community. Schopenhauer says a colony of porcupines were standing apart on a cold night. And the colder it got, the further they got, no, the first night they got cold and so they got close to each other. Porcupines getting too close to each other, that creates certain problems. The next morning he said, pricked by each other's own quills. Some had died and others were bleeding. And they began to learn the first lesson when community's too tight. Baptists know about that. There are a lot of people who know if we got it all together, we heard a Dr. Wright too, you get it all together, you get too tight. You talk about fanatic Baptists, there are some. Mr. Dooley in Chicago, creation of a newspaper columnist 100 years ago, Mr. Dooley defined a fanatic in Irish terms. A fanatic is someone who knows he's doing exactly what the Lord would do if the Lord were also in possession of the facts. <laughs> when you get the kind of close community where people have fortified each other in it, and we heard that we are cautioned about that, code orange, <laughs> I would say, and called, and that's the metaphor we leave us with. I think it was interesting to me that Dr. Goatley mentioned that um, we shouldn't be utilitarian too much about thinking about the future. Well, Schopenhauer said those porcupines on another occasion, when it was cold, they'd learned about being too tight, and so they stayed apart, individualists, too far apart, and many of them froze. So he said their task was to learn to modulate how close to get together to get the warmth of each other without getting so close that you get uh, injured by each other. Uh, that is utilitarian, though. You'd rather be warm than not. You'd rather not be bloodied than not. So I think we can say that the quest for community is born in 1609, 1659 in the Baptist world, and 1609, and it's not going to go away in the future. Second one on identity and freedom. You really don't get very far in Baptist discourse without freedom coming. I like the correction, freedom of conscience is much better than soul liberty. The conscience that you have of yourself. To me, the most moving part of Dr. Lozano's presentation was in the question form. Can I trust? Can I trust these people? Can I trust this? Can I trust that? Because you act most in freedom when you have a base of a kind of a security along the way. And she invoked what doesn't often come up in this discourse, the Holy Spirit, the part you can't calculate. Wind blows where it wills, Jesus says, and the Holy Spirit regularly revisits the church, and the task in the Baptist tradition is to see to it that we haven't formed so tight a group that the Spirit can't break through or are so dispersed in our individualism that we aren't formed in a community at all. And then the third one, 
and I want to be brief about this so we get into question and discussion period on uh, imagination and promise. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once described prophecy as hope projected backward. You have a screen and you do it, all the 8th century prophets are doing that. They project what it would be like if we respond to the Lord's call. And then you project that and it holds you together in exile, in captivity, or whatever. And the great temptation is to be so realistic that that stands no chance. We haven't made much of it today in last night's gathering or tonight's gathering of the Baptist that's best known in America, Martin Luther King. I hung out a lot with King's people, and there were a lot of secularists and Jews and everybody else. And any time they couldn't make sense of him, I would always say, you will never understand King if you don't realize that he is an African-American Baptist. And the more they read about it, the more they thought about it. And as you read the multi-volume things that are coming out, why did he have hope? Why use biblical metaphors? Why look ahead and see? Why look beyond the Jordan, etc.? An openness to the future. I once was on a program with my teacher and later Librarian of Congress, Daniel Borston, and Buckminster Fuller. Fuller always lived three centuries ahead. He, well, he'll be around when we're here, the great technologist dreamer. And we were there at a conference where we were supposed to discuss a book on the decline of the West. And we all took gloom lessons. We all did all we could to pretend it was a perpetual blue Monday. Oh, we were, oh, we were down. Oh, man, it was awful. And our hosts, the Annenbergs, who owned Racing Form and TV Guide and were enamored of that book, took us apart at halftime, intermission. My wife's a musician, doesn't like the word halftime, but halftime. Took us apart and said, you're not down enough. Uh, things are really bad. They were actually had good reason to be because they were conference on technology and how it was going to hurt the print industry. So they weren't all the way off. But uh, you're not gloomy enough. So Daniel Borston said, when we get back in, I'll take care of that. So he said to the audience, we've been chastised for not being depressed enough, pessimistic enough. And we want to tell you, we do not know enough about the future to be absolutely pessimistic. Once you get away from the sense of the absolute pessimism and look into the faces of the young and into Revelation 7 and all the rest, you get a very different kind of picture along the way. I heard reflections of Paul Tillich's Protestant principle and Catholic substance in some of Dr. Wright's theme. And in a way, that's what Baptists anticipate. And the Protestant principle is what Baptists are in the world for, but they are also Catholic in the sense he defined it. And if you go too far in either one, remember the porcupine image. You can either inflict damage upon each other by suppression of freedom, by confinement to class, by not looking to the promise, or you can also go into chaos by being so far apart that you think individually you will make it instead of, as Dr. Oatley said, through community. So I hope community, identity, and promise will be a little part of where we go. I, <laughs> I can't resist one little paragraph yet because it came up implicitly in Dr. Lozano. Reading a magazine called Cross Currents. It's a uh, Roman Catholic independent magazine of culture. And uh, there's an article here by Curtis Freeman. Uh, yeah, no, Charles. Yeah, Curtis Freeman, many of you may know, a Houston Baptist, on the future of this. And he's telling the Catholics about it. He's talking about growing up Southern and Baptist. And he said, we're not to be conformed to the world. 
Though debate raged on about what constituted worldliness, nonconformity to the world was generally confined to the finger sins. I'd never heard that phrase before, but it'll work. The finger sins were don't drink, dance, smoke, chew, cuss, play cards, gamble, shop on Sabbath, go to the picture show, or engage in mixed bathing, which is known as swimming. To be sure, the list differed according to regions. Smoking was not allowed in Texas, frowned on in Tennessee, and required in North Carolina. <laughs> Similarly, you were considered to be a vicious sinner if you played cards, but a virtual saint if you were good at dominoes. The biggest indication of worldliness was alcohol. Drunkards were churched, and social drinkers were shamed. Back then, it never occurred to me that other factors might be in play. Very few Baptists in the South owned a distillery or a brewery, but quite a few of them farmed tobacco or worked in the cigarette industry. However superficial the finger sins litany might have been, it at least attempted to make us conscious of what was otherwise not clear, namely, the church is not the world, and then he went on very much in Dr. Lozano's mood, precisely because Baptists shared in the cultural establishment, and in many ways exemplified it, they could not so easily extract themselves from the real sins, the resulting habits and ideologies of white supremacy, male domination, economic subjugation, and militaristic nationalism. With such apparently intractable difficulties, how can the otherness of the church be put into view? It's there waiting for us, and the Baptist tradition in its 401st year, I think, is full of promise that we can face that. Thank you. Okay, it's time for discussion and questions from the audience. Uh, my two colleagues, Dr. Rosalie Beck and Dr. Barry H., will be working the aisles. And so if you have a question, just uh, make yourself known. I want to try to pull together some strands that were several of, uh, in the several of the commentaries. Uh, you talked about this kind of free-form spirituality last night, Dr. Marty. You talked about the communion uh, issue. Uh, you talked about, uh, Dr. Lozano kind of touched upon this matter of theological education and content. Well, one of the concerns I have about the future that I'd like to hear addressed, uh, in the recent years, because of our civil context as well as our religious context, I went back and reread Hofstadler's Anti-Intellectualism in America. And those of you who are familiar with that work, and I know Dr. Marty is, a great deal of that book deals with anti-intellectualism in religion. And it seems to me that uh, one of the issues that we are facing as Baptists in the future is this anti-intellectualism that is growing in strength. Uh, some of it can be identified with fundamentalism. None of you touched on fundamentalism. Uh, when we think about the rising lay movement, even when you talk about the shifting center of uh, Christendom into the Southern Hemisphere. And when you think of uh, recent issues, uh, there is this anti-intellectualism. It's felt on college campuses, felt in seminaries. Uh, it's something, it seems to me, that is touching every denomination. I'd be interested in, in how you think that's going to play out uh, in the future of Baptist. Are we going back to a pre-enlightenment uh, kind of... Uh, Christianity? Or are we going back to a Calvinistic uh, state control? Uh, what, where are we going with this? And uh, how shall we deal with that? 
Shall I start? Okay. Um, thank you. Great question. I uh, don't know what the answer is <laughs> because I suspect that this is an ongoing battle. Um, just to put a different perspective, an alternative perspective, um, I, I, unlike others on the, on the um, platform here, I, uh, in Britain we are very much influenced by the charismatic movement. The ba British Baptists are generally quite charismatic. Uh, in many of their churches, and I've been part of that, and gladly part of that, and willing to defend to defend it. And one of the things I notice traveling around is that post the charismatic renewal, there is a great hunger to understand, and that many of the churches which have been strongly charismatic are now going into a stage where their capacity to study, reflect, engage is is considerable. And I find that very welcoming. So I don't think the signs are all in one direction, that everything is in the anti-intellectual way. And even in America, as I understand the scene over here, uh, I know, and I don't totally approve of this, there, there is, the, uh, there is the, the resurgence of a certain kind of Calvinism to fill the gap which a lot of younger Christians feel who have been brought up in an existential, emotional experience-based kind of Christianity. Now, as I say, I don't necessarily approve of the form it takes, but I do approve of the, the hunger for doctrine and understanding. That's my job, to be a teacher of doctrine. So the traffic seems to me not to be all in one way, and I think we do have to insist that to love God is to love God with our minds, as well as with our heart and with our soul, with our strength. And uh, places like Baylor, many of you who are here, like me, are in a good position, I think, to hold up the banner for that. So it, I think it is a problem, but I, I think also there are good signs of a, a, of a new desire to engage with the long Christian tradition of intellectual reflection that we are heirs to. Thank you. Um, thinking from a Hispanic uh, Latino perspective uh, about anti-intellectualism, uh, for me, it assumes that you are an intellectual to start with, okay? And uh, I think, you know, here, and I will assume maybe for the African-American uh, population will be the, the same thing, that they're saying that we need to move to a pro-intellectualism right now, you know, because we see it, in, again, in the production of knowledge, in the production of uh, scholars and all that is still very low coming from this, uh, these groups. So I'm not sure that I can talk about an anti-intellectualism, anti you know, in the, within this population, and I would like to move more in the direction that my colleague was saying, you know, that we need to keep working, encouraging our populations to move in that direction. I think that uh, part of the challenge that makes anti-intellectualism brings it to the table has to do with people who are concerned about control. Um, if you can, if you promote um, reflection, exposure, if you're intentional about engaging with people who do not think the same way you are, then that can be threatening. So I think that when there are people who are more concerned about control, maintaining systems tightly, then that makes them move toward anti-intellectualism. 
um, if you have a very pragmatic way, you only talk to people who agree with you rather than intentionally reaching out and engaging with others with whom you may or may not agree. Uh, it helps you sharpen. It helps you, um, you may need to reform, reflect, or repent. So I think that if people who are, people who are concerned about control are the ones who are kind of pushing the anti-intellectual approach, I, I think. But also I think that we need to value multiple ways of knowing. And for those who do, you know, pedagogy, uh, there are some people who, who learn in different ways, and there are different ways of knowing. And I think while we have, while we don't want to buy into the anti-intellectual approach, we also don't want to invalidate multiple ways of knowing in multiple ways. So for example, in the tradition I'm a part of, uh, orality and orality is a very important way of knowing. And because someone is um, heavily invested in the oral and oral tradition does not mean that they lack intellectual um, acuity. Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Acuity. So I, it's, it's a both and for me, but I think that those who are concerned about control and power and who are afraid of this kind of decentralizing, distributing network that I think more and more we're going to have to deal with in the 21st century, I think those are the ones who probably will be more worried about intellectual freedom and um, reaching beyond those who agree with you. Uh, I want to kind of piggyback on the previous question and just, uh, just say that uh, I, I am a Baptist, uh, Latino Baptist like Dr. Lozano, although I was not a Baptist in my mother's womb. Like <laughs> um, but I find myself uh, increasingly uninspired by all this conversation among Baptists of freedom or, you know, soul competency, etc., and I, I see myself more as a, 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 a more enthusiastic with, with a movement of Baptists that is not so much concerned in examining the previous 400 years, although we're thankful about them. And, and, and also, at the same time, reflective about what we need to do in the next 400 years. And because of that, we, we have found uh, a, a way, you know, out of the ordinary Baptist ways of thinking by looking at the previous 1,600 years of Christianity. And so I want, I, I want to see if you will comment on what, what do you see, what impact do you see this, this movement of Baptists who are connecting with the intellectual tradition of the, of the church, of the universal church, uh, what, what impact will they have? And maybe uh, what, an, what alternatives will they offer to our previous, uh, you know, maybe I can say they, they were, they were not, not brilliantly intellectual 400 years. Okay, um, I don't know why I'm starting this one again. 
somebody else should really kick off, but um, if I understand the question right, it's about, I don't see this as alternatives. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I personally don't want to disown the heritage of freedom. I am grateful for it, and I want to celebrate it and stick with it and amplify it, and I'm not going to get tired of that, quite frankly. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a good thing for, for me, for us, for the whole church. But I think there is a trend, and I welcome this trend, and I notice it certainly in my own country, and I notice it in some writers in the States here, towards a more Catholic understanding of their own identity as Baptists. And uh, I think that is only to be welcomed. And if, if you follow the logic I was trying to expand in what I said, there is the wisdom of the whole church, and we are more dependent upon it than we think we are. You know, the idea that somehow we are separate from the Catholic tradition is, is not tenable. Even the Bible that we read and that we appeal to is given to us by those who were in the church before us. And uh, we, we didn't rework the canon when Baptists came along. We accepted what was given. And that is only one way in which uh, we have inherited a tradition We've inherited a life of faith from the wider life of the church. And that, to me, is a pointer as to where the future is, as well as the past is. Exploring that, the riches of the wisdom of the whole church, seems to me to be absolutely essential. I would say that uh, by connecting with history, with the, with the past, one of the things that we can do is learn from history what went wrong, what went right, and... Hopefully we don't have to repeat history again with the things that went wrong. So that's, that's something that we need to, uh, that certainly if we can look at and try to find patterns again to be more healthy, to be more uh, uh, appropriate, to be more vital for the, for the future, not only of Baptists, but for our mission of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, recovery of doctrines also that because, as I was mentioning, you know, we don't want to be identified as such and such or we don't do this or we don't do that. But that's part of our Christian heritage. So we, we need to recover that. We need to study that again. Uh, as I was saying in my, in my response, as far as I know, the Holy Spirit is not, does not belong to the Pentecostals or the Charismatics. You know, it's in the Bible. And we need the Holy Spirit and other doctrines that we may have to review also, and uh, without, so without compromising our essentials, learning from the other groups, you know, as uh, Dr. Wright was saying, I think it's very important to look not only at Catholics, but at other groups and how we can learn from them uh, a more balanced theology and then a more balanced praxis of this theology. I say amen. <laughs> okay. It's a very good question, and I think what, what we are seeing internationally, um, the church today, thoughtful people in the church are engaging what I call an enlarging of the repertory of options. Um, I'm just finished in a book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in his last couple months in prison said, we have been over this German Lutheran reform thing a thousand times and getting kind of stale. Uh, I'm reading more and more of the early church people because it was a different set of options. They were wrestling with exactly the same thing he was wrestling with, freedom, death, conscience, etc. and they were presenting it. And some of the reasons I think that are drawn, first of all, it gives a sense of a longer history. One of the things that um, is almost being done romantically is the numbers of people, oh, Wheaton College I know quite well, about 
as evangelical as you can get, and numbers of their faculty have joined the Eastern Orthodox churches, um, et cetera. They want a little sense of a longer pull. I don't think that's the solution for everybody. It can be romantic, it can be nostalgic, it can be weird. But uh, it, it, again, that phrase I would like to put in your mind, enlarging the repository of options. Um, church and state. If you want to get back to thinking about how Christians might think about the state, it's kind of fun to ask what did people do about it before Constantine came along when we became the official religion of the empire and we're still suffering from Constantinianism. Not that nothing good happened under Constantine. We had a world of uh, cathedrals and all the other things when you had official Christianity in Europe, but um, I wouldn't try that in Tanzania and I wouldn't try that in a lot of other places. So it, it says there are a lot of other ways that the Christians have done it. And just as I like uh, Dr. Wright's phrase, corrective ecumenism, just as you are reaching more and more to each other horizontally <laughs> in the year uh, 2010, you could reach vertically through the ages too to, to get, get those. I don't think Baptists or anybody else are gonna turn Eastern Orthodox or gonna start sounding as if they can deal between substance, essence, usia, and all the other words of the early church, but they got a, a final illustration of how this works. Uh, during the height of feminism at our school, and many schools like it, um, a lot of them got tired of reading Mary Daly and Rosemary Ruther and so on. More women students were writing dissertations on medieval women mystics. Juliana of Norwich and uh, uh, Hildegard of Bingen and uh, any, just any number, Margaret Porath. Um, and they were doing that not to turn antiquarian, but because it helped them think new ways about God, about meditation, etc. So I think uh, it, it's not gonna prevail in the Baptists or any of the other churches, but it sure gives us a, a, a richer palette for the imagination that Dr. Wright was talking about. Um, Mike, it's, it's going on toward 8.30. Our guests have had a very, very long day, and so I think that uh, Barry, would it be appropriate to conclude with Dr. Marty's comments? Join me in uh, thanking our panel and Dr. Marty for being here. And thank you all for being here. We look forward to more dialogue like this over the course of uh, the near and far future ahead of us. Thank you.